Welcome to Bite Side. I'm Seamus Byrne. I'm up tempo again this week, Nick, because it's an exciting week. It's almost, well, it's, we're post long weekend. It feels like for many, many parts of Australia, this is the official <laughs> end of summer, back to work, kids going back to school, all those things happening. So you have to get your full business game face back on. So I'm ready for action. How are you, Nick Healy? I'm, I'm very well. And I, I do love the fact that it seems to be this default Australian thing that we don't really acknowledge the year started till one twelfth of it has already gone. <laughs> That's right. I actually saw an academic just before Christmas kind of quite rightly, a very entrepreneurial academic pointing out that essentially uh, from early December until the start of February, an awful lot of academic work just stops. And he's like, you know what? In a competitive sense, we really shouldn't decide this is okay anymore. We probably shouldn't, but boy, you know, pry it out of my cold dead hands. That's what I say. <laughs> here, here. Um, You know what else can be pried out of my cold dead hands, Nick? Uh, I feel like I know where we're going with this. (laughs) (laughs) Ten years of the iPad. It is quite uh, an achievement to think that, well, no, it it doesn't feel like it's been ten years. Um, But it was a hell of a thing. And certainly, you know, the iPad entirely focused on that simple idea that something comfortably sized to just sit back and use a large screen device that is a bit like a mega-sized iPhone back when it launched. That was pretty much the concept, I guess. Um, But, yeah, 10 years on, and it really has sort of been one of those interesting journeys where there have been moments when people think, is it over? Was the iPad a flash in the pan? Oh, look, here's a small one. I'm in love all over again. (laughs) Here's the professional version. Here's a cool keyboard. It's... It's evolved a lot over that time, and certainly I think it's influenced a lot of the whole kind of wider industry. But, I mean, what's your own journey been with – have you used them? Have you owned them? What's your vibe with iPad? I've never owned an iPad. Um, You know that just somehow I never got into that Apple ecosystem, never quite deliberately. Um, I've certainly used a lot of their products. I've really enjoyed them, but I've never purchased one for my own use, never thrown myself into the fold. Couldn't even tell you why, if I'm perfectly honest, because given that I thought the iPod was one of the most brilliant inventions I had ever seen in my entire life, I'm talking about the original with the hard yeah. drive, the tiny screen, the wheel, I just thought that was a future I'd never anticipated seeing. Why I didn't follow through with that, I don't know. And the iPad was particularly one of them. I, I freely confess to absolutely poo-pooing the concept 10 years ago. I could not see that it would make a genuine dent in the technology we already had that was already providing everything that it was meant to be doing. I was wrong. I was unbelievably wrong. And I think it all came down to what you alluded to, that convenience. Having used an iPad, there's a simplicity to it that we'll talk other tablets later on, but I don't think any other tablet manufacturer has managed to capture how easy it is to get in on an iPad. And I must say, my day-to-day job, when I'm doing what we call an outside broadcast, when I'm away from my studio, when I'm out sort of on the street or broadcasting from an event or out the front of a conference, a lot of how I run the radio program is actually using the iPad now. And that blows my mind. Yeah, that. I mean, that's a really sort of great point. I think 
for me, it felt like, I mean, it's funny. I, yeah, I really didn't think, I know that you've never sort of bought into the Apple ecosystem, as you say, but, um, iPad is kind of still actually, it sits in its own little weird space in some ways, which has partly, I think, made people question, you know, its longevity, but also I think, it has been that one thing that I think I could completely imagine a lot of people who don't own iPhones, don't own Macs, but they might have actually owned an iPad along the way. And I think in that early sense, uh, what it started to seem to do well was exactly like you're talking about with the outside broadcast stuff is that I think it's become very good at being a dedicated computing device for doing specific sort of tasks you know it's it's through most of its life it's getting better at it but through most of its life it has struggled with multitasking and all those things that we would use a traditional laptop for but at doing a specific thing and letting you like set it up and just be there to do that job uh it has found quite a, a lot of life through that and then of course just as that i mean so often i always think of it as you know, the couch device, the thing that you can just have in your lap to, you know, quickly look up, oh, like, who's that person on that TV show? Or, you know, multi-screen sort of for a bit of, uh, you know, YouTubing or whatever. I mean, it is our bedroom TV nowadays, right? In our household, we don't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I even wonder how many people these days truly have the second TV in the bedroom. But for us, it's like the iPad sits there on the bed, and we dial up whatever service we want to watch a TV show on. Uh, and it's that convenient thing of it also just disappears and you don't have to think about it again once, you know, once you've thrown it, uh, thrown it in the corner. <laughs> Look, it, it, the, the reason people would have a second TV in another room now is predominantly gaming. I think you're right. We're consuming media in terms of that passive consumption unbelievably through devices like the iPad, uh, whereas TVs, I think, you know, I'm on it to game. I'm, that's unfair. I'm, I would watch a movie on my TV. I would absolutely watch TV series on, on a tablet. I, I, I just have that yeah. dividing line. I think it's, uh, being, you know, a former T, uh, film reviewer. I just take film a little bit more seriously and I want it to be on the big screen, the big sound, kind of beside the point with the iPad. And I know you've been using it for pretty much that whole 10 years. What do you think has changed in that 10 years? Because to me, it seems like a remarkably identical device with just a few tweaks. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think, um, and I'll actually also point out, I poo-pooed it when it first hit as well. I I felt really weird (laughs) about that screen size, that it was that traditional non-widescreen computer screen ratio, like 4.3. And so I remember at the time thinking, this is kind of weird because if you're going to watch a movie on it, the movie is going to be, you know, have the black bars around it. It feels like it's not using the space all that well. It had a massive bezel on the edges. Uh, and that's probably been the main thing that has changed is it got thinner. The bezel got smaller. Uh, I know that, you know, now the sort of standard, um, the standard iPad, the one that doesn't have pro or mini or air or anything attached to it anymore uh an ipad is now i think you know a 10.1 inch screen when it used to be like 9.7 or something because they you know they shifted the bezel over time but uh, you know in the latest sort of round of things they went well let's just make the screen a bit bigger to fill out that same amount of space uh and so now it is that you know that sort of ratio has changed but overall 
it's been pretty consistent. And I think the biggest thing in that is that invisible aspect, right? Apple has their chip development in-house for these, you know, A-series mm. chips have been wildly successful at, you know, starting to surpass the speed at which Intel chips were were getting faster. And it meant, you know, that their phones, uh, obviously the whole phone market has kind of had that massive speed boost over time. But um, I think the iPad uh, as as a device for entertainment has sort of grown. Um, but then as they got into these kind of iPad Pro accessories and things, uh, it, it has meant that it has started to try to do that job of you can get away with this as a device um, where you don't need a laptop with you. And for some people, that is definitely becoming quite comfortable. I've tried it at different times and definitely found it easier and easier over time. Uh, I'll just quickly just mention, though, that there is this great Twitter thread from Stephen Sanofsky. He was actually the guy in charge of Windows at Microsoft oh. on the day the iPad launched. And on the 10th anniversary, he has just done a big Twitter thread pointing out the reality of how they thought about it. Because, of course, you know, 10 years ago, they all... Yeah, they always talk a big game and they're not worried and this and that, the other. Uh, he has delivered a great thread that actually goes through what they were thinking it was going to be, what their expectations were. And for them, it was that feeling, almost like part of what it has now decided to support, which is pen support, keyboard support, things like that. Way back then, they said, because they were coming from this paradigm of of trying to do, you know, the WinPad tablet PC that they were always thinking about those kinds of inputs and those kinds of ways of doing it, but that they really missed that idea that Apple was going to scale up the iPhone rather than scale down the Mac. And that the thing that they actually felt like it started to really put pressure on was that netbook market, which back then and I remember loving kind of the whole idea of netbooks back then. You know, it was a very cut down kind of laptop, simplified. It was mostly focused on just being good at web and, you know, and a few basic things, but it was running Windows. Uh, but that that's one of the big things that that sort of cut into was saying, you know what, like the netbook is actually a bit of a rubbish PC anyway. So let's just dive in there and make a better price device that suits simple use cases. But of course, you know, I, I almost feel a bit sorry for Windows on that because as you alluded to, you know, Windows Tablet Edition had been a huge collaboration between them and some of the manufacturers well before the iPad. You know, the, the things we take for granted now, tablet, you know, laptops that could fold around, the screen worked with a pen or a touchscreen, and it was bloody terrible. It was not what people wanted <laughs> yeah. at all. Oh my like, God. You know, and I, I can get this frustration of, uh, hang on, we did all of that You've just done it with less computing power. Why are people getting excited about this all of a sudden? Yeah. And the other thing is, as you said, it's now regarded as a media device. Ten years ago, what were you doing on an iPad? There wasn't the app ecosystem. There certainly wasn't the streaming media ecosystem. What were you genuinely doing on an iPad that made it feel like such a necessity. And that's what's really curious to me. You know, I feel like we now have an ecosystem that grew to match the technology, uh, which is, kind of makes sense, but not a a need. People weren't sitting around going, ah, oh, if only I had an iPad, all these things would be available to me. They had to create the platform 
and the product to then create the need. And it's a really just counterintuitive to me in a weird way sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. And and I, I think part of it is, you know, looking back again, it, it seems like the smart parts of it were just to have this kind of simple compute device that wasn't because again when we think back to when it launched the screen of iPhones and all smartphones they hadn't started to scale up yet to that mm. kind of 5 inch size they were still quite small this was that kind of idea of saying well this will do all the things you know which at that time pretty much it was all the things you can do on an iPhone but it does it on a bigger more comfortable screen um and even, like I say, comparing it to the whole Windows tablet thing from that era, um, I think a really important comparison was the kinds of stipulations that Apple was willing to force onto developers. Because for them, it's always, um, you know, let's make sure that the end user experience is right. Not in that way that sometimes Windows you know, things can be a bit different on every single app and and you have to just kind of learn it. And that's like part of why Windows has a vastly better ecosystem in so many ways on the main platforms. Um, but for something like the iPad, the big thing was like the size of a tap target was something that was clearly defined, that huh. it has it had to be a very comfortable thing for someone to tap with their finger on the screen. And it meant in those kind of pixel size terms, it was very, very clear that something cannot be smaller than a certain size on the screen. And comparing that to that whole issue of Windows tablets needing a stylus because you were essentially just trying to tap things that were designed for a traditional mouse interface um, meant it was it never felt like it was meant to do that in a way that then that that experience, and, you know, and I think right out of the gate, you know, the iPad wasn't perfect. And I think over that first couple of years, uh, it definitely got better. Even that, the, here's the one that weirds me out, and this probably can start to lead us into the whole wider idea of, you know, the tablet market in general, but I'm still baffled by why more modern laptops don't just let you have a SIM card and have a plan directly on on the device, you know, when iPad launched, it did launch with the idea that you could get a 3G version. And so you could have it internet connected everywhere you go. And it was still just, you know, something because again, it was based on the iPhone, but it is so rare. I think like Lenovo might have one or two of these sorts of devices, but there are so few companies that have ever embraced that idea that I shouldn't have to tether the device that is my most important device that I want connected. Yeah, I can, but give me the option if that is considered the most important part of using a device these days is that it is always connected. It's just weird that that hasn't evolved into the wider ecosystem. It is really odd. And, you know, we saw this whole idea of your, your what did we used to call it? The personal area network. And I remember years ago, this concept that you'd have one kind of access point. Maybe that would be a, a kind of a Wi-Fi dongle or something like that, but everything else would attach to it. Of course, we didn't end up with that. No one wants that additional device. But I remember at one point, there was this real concept that, that we would have multiple devices all connecting through one way. You got a really interesting point there that we haven't actually found a good solution for that. Yeah. And I mean, actually, it's funny that mostly when I'm on the train or something, I'm actually tethered to my iPad, not to my phone, partly because, and I have, I have no experimental evidence for this, 
but my brain has decided that the iPad is bigger and therefore probably has a bigger antenna, and I feel like it doesn't disconnect as much when I'm going through weak zones of internet connectivity. I'm not going to judge you on that. I mean, back in the bad old uh, days of connectivity, I used to shake my phone to make the SMSs go out of it if they weren't <laughs> sending. So I completely understand. It sounds perfectly rational. Look, this is kind of bringing us up to something I did want to talk about. It's the idea, and, and I think you put it really well, do we still have a tablet market or do we have an iPad market? Because, of course, we have seen a lot of people come in with tablet devices, slate devices, as they've been known, and yet... None of them have really stuck around. I can think of Samsung off the top of my head, but I couldn't tell you an HP tablet off the top of my name. I'm, I'm sure LG, not LG, um, Lenovo do one, but I couldn't tell you one of their most recent models. Uh, I could maybe assume that Samsung have a Galaxy tablet still, but it feels like a lot of people came into this space, found it incredibly hard to get traction, whether they were trying to come in on a Windows device or an Android device. And have left. And I, I was trying to look up some of the data on this because it's been ages since I've had to look at any numbers around it. I was a bit shocked to see that middle of last year, tablets only had a market share of 3.8% worldwide. That's significantly less than I would have thought. Yeah. And I feel like some of these stats can always, like they can feel confusing, I guess. Like I always wonder, and I haven't you know, triple checked the stats. I'm not sure if it is... Uh, percentage of new device sales or whether it is the install base. I like Because one of the things that I know has definitely played out was that when the sale of uh, tablets or of iPads kind of peaked and then started to drop, one of the big realizations was when people bought one of these, it, it was nothing like the upgrade cycle of both laptops and and smartphones, you know, that people were like, this is great. This does some more basic tasks, but because it didn't have that incentive of, oh, I need the latest camera or oh, I, uh, you know, I need it when it's r running five apps at the same time to be faster, that the, the desire to kind of get a better one wasn't as big a deal. And so there actually was some stats saying that like five plus years was, was the typical shelf life for uh, yeah, for an iPad to be used in, you know, in someone's lineup of devices. So that's definitely kind of played with some of these stats. Um, but that said, I did see one stat from, I think it was from the 20, I can't remember if it was from last year or the year before's announcements for iPad. Um, but Tim Cook pointed out they had sold, I think it was about 40 million iPads in the four quarters in the lead up to that launch. And they then pointed out that, and this is where I think percentages of total market can be really weird sometimes, because they then pointed out that they had sold more iPads than HP or Lenovo or a few others had sold of all of their laptops. <laughs> and it's that weird thing where you go, yeah, when we think grand sweep of a market versus you know, this one company managing to go, well, we are perfectly happy with how many of these things we sell because then when you stop trying to think of it as did the tablet take over everything and just think of how how are we doing compared to and like even you know they sell more iPads than their own Mac laptops and things but of course compared to iPhone it's like oh 
they sell bugger all of these. That didn't work out. Um, <laughs> but with so many of those stats, you sort of like, well, you know, smartphones really did take over the world. Tablets are more of a useful side project that, okay, yeah, we don't upgrade them all that often, but people have found a place for them in their life. Look, that's actually a really good point. And something that struck me while you were saying that five-year shelf life for an iPad, that makes sense to me if we assume people are using them for media consumption and entertainment because there could be no nothing that's trying to take over some of those business aspects of devices could possibly survive five years, in my view. And, of course, you know, we've I, I think I see a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to type on the iPad. It's going to replace my laptop. And a lot of people have found that that is not actually very effective. We've been hunting something like that for ages. I remember catching a flight with Gus Kidman, God knows how many years ago, and he had a fold-up mechanical keyboard for his Palm Pilot. And it was like, <laughs> well, you know, I don't need a laptop anymore. I don't know how that worked out. We should check in with Gus on that one. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is not, in my view, and I've used a few of these tablets, I don't think it will ever make that replacement for a significant business use of a traditional laptop. I'm sure there are plenty of cases where a, a tablet's exactly what you need for warehousing, inventory, things like that. But for your general kind of home office or office office, I don't think it can make that make that adjustment into being that sole device. And I think that's what gives it such an extensive shelf life. Yeah, I mean, I quite often use the iPad as my, like a dedicated writing device. So, you know, if I, because, you know, other things don't feel quite as, you know, alt tab away as they do on a, on my full laptop. Yeah. So if I just huh. go, I just need to sit down for half an hour and bash out a lot of words. I'll open up simple note and I'll just write and, you know, and I am very good at doing the kind of quick swipes and things to be able to multitask on it. But there really is just, you know, it's almost like it puts me into a different brain state where I, I kind of know I'm using this to focus. And whether that is using it to chill out sometimes to, you know, because it is a great Hearthstone device. I'm not going <laughs> to lie that a lot of my last five years of iPad life has been because it is a beautiful device for playing Hearthstone. Um, but yeah, it just, it feels like that sort of dedicated mind space in that way that a laptop is everything and therefore I know everything is just a tab away. Look, and that might be something that is an iPad specific thing because I remember nine years ago, 2011, desperately trying to use the Motorola Zoom as a dedicated uh, writing oh. device because I assumed I had to. I needed to prove that this worked, and it was not <laughs> a great dedicated writing device yeah. at all. And, I mean, here is an interesting point and probably a good place to wrap up is that it is only in the last year that Apple said, you know what, uh, the iPad deserves its own operating system that it was always purely a shared platform. Uh, everything was iOS, and it either was iOS for iPhone or iOS for iPad, and then they created the iPad OS uh, last year as a way to say, you know what, we need to start giving it its own capabilities that we don't have to feel like kind of also have to fit on the phone. Um, so it is sort of interesting that at this you know 10-year landmark that, Apple's even kind of acknowledged that if we want to push this further and make it do, you know, other things that maybe, you know, we've never really sort of pushed that potential of, then we need to stop making it fit with what the phone can do and make it 
work better as its own thing. And that's a way in which Android, I guess, is always as well. Like Google never had skin in the game when it came to making tablets, you know, tablets work well. No. And that's, I think, partly where that Android tablet market struggled because so many apps on the times I tried them, you could just tell it was just trying to resize a phone app. And it just didn't feel right. Whereas, you know, at least kind of Apple always set those rules, but now they're saying, you know what? It's time that it has its own set of rules so that developers can start pushing this to a new place. For some reason, as you were talking about getting its own operating system, I just flashed back to once again, 2011, the touchpad coming out, HP touchpad with WebOS. And then, oh my God. Remember, it was 49 <laughs> days later that HP were like, yeah, now we're discontinuing, discontinuing <laughs> all of it. We're closing down WebOS. Oh, that, yeah, that was, that was a remarkable moment. And I mean, I remember they came and showed us some of the accessories that were going to be available for oh. it, which were these like gargantuan add-ons. <laughs> but they were like, yeah, and you get these three things, each of them costing like hundreds of dollars. Something like, why wouldn't someone just get a laptop? Why wouldn't somebody indeed? <laughs> All right. I think that is a uh, a wonderful 10-year summation of the joy of the iPad. <laughs> yep. You don't need to go and read any of those other things out there about it today. Please but don't. I'll link a couple of them in the show notes. Just yeah, so all right. Can. Maybe one or two. <laughs> just maybe one or two. Look, I the weird thing is I often associate Apple devices with you because you've been one of the most consistent users of them. And I, I do think one of my great memories of working with you is whenever cricket was on, your um, uh, mini iPad mini became a dedicated cricket delivery device yes. at any time. But the other company I think of for you is Sonos because you have been a, well, a user of them, but also quite a fan of the way they've produced their technology for quite a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I've used it for, yeah, more than a decade um, probably 12, 13 years. Uh, and yeah, I think the biggest thing, like, I still always remember the very, very first thing that Sonos did that I completely fell in love with was when I had these two separate speakers and then they released a software update that would let those speakers operate as a stereo pair. And, and at that point, those speakers within their whole, you know, lineup of, of hardware were like a few years old. And they had new things coming out and it just always seemed like it would be a perfectly reasonable thing for most of these kinds of you know, entertainment hardware companies to go, oh, the new ones have uh, stereo pairing. The old ones can't do that. And But it's been their ability to sort of look after that entire ecosystem over time and keep it all working that has been a huge part of of why people have loved it. But actually, yeah, there's a big issue right now where they're running into um, a, you know, a bit of a, I guess they're probably running into, on their back end, they're running into a wall where it is very, very hard to keep the oldest hardware uh, working alongside the newest hardware and keeping up with all the software updates that they want to make happen. Uh, and yeah, they really sort of had a huge crunch point last week where they sent out a, a letter to owners of Sonos hardware, basically saying that the, the first generation Play 5 speakers, uh, which were some of those big ones, in fact, <laughs> exactly the units I was talking about at the start there, uh, that they are going to hit an end of life uh, in a few months' time and that software updates after that won't happen and and that if you want to keep using them, basically, and using them alongside new stuff, then you will have to no longer update your software 
and that that means some features might start to not work properly because you're not updating your software. And basically, they were putting people in this really awkward position after a long, long time of never, ever kind of making us feel like this was something that was on the cards. It is a really interesting one because the question here is how much does Sonos owe people who bought their product 10 years ago? Longer. I think, you know, we're talking about speakers that have been out since some of them 2006. Is that the catchphrase? Yeah. 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 And look, and this is, this is so complicated. And I know I'm definitely going to sort of follow up with some of this with some of our friends who are places like Choice, uh, to talk about exactly what this might mean in consumer law terms. Because I did hear some people during this, because at first I'm like, well, it is amazing that they've supported this for so long, you know, and it's hard to, to complain. Um, but then I did have some people saying that they bought these exact models only about four years ago. And within the context of a company where these are very premium priced speakers and it is a company that's so well known for this long-term support and that everything will just keep working, um, that that feels a little more, you know, there's a bit more tension attached to that particular situation. Um, they started offering, and this is where this all kind of first started to bubble up because I think a couple of months ago they started offering what they were calling a recycling program. And it was uh, the idea that you could get a 30% discount on new hardware by sort of pressing this option to, you know, discontinue your use of one of the older speakers. But actually what that set in place was a 90-day countdown where they would literally brick the old speakers. It, it's crazy. It, it, that that blew my mind because that was so antithetical to what I had always thought of as that Sonos ethos. Yeah, and it and people were like, well, hang on, wouldn't a better recycling program be that you take them and then you refurbish them and resell them to people who you know, like, do some kind of a program that means a perfectly good speaker isn't just killed because that is a bigger recycling problem than doing some kind of a we'll take them back and then we'll tear them down for spare parts or we'll do something with them other than and you now possess a bricked device that you have to dispose of with all those kind of, you know, all the beautiful magnets and horrible (laughs) metals and stuff that are inside any good speaker. (laughs) Um, So that got really, really complicated. But then this sort of started to make a bit more sense of why they were saying, well, we're just going to brick those old ones because we're no longer even going to support them. Um, but the good news is that within a few days, I think it was over the weekend that I received an email going, we've heard you, we're sorry, uh, we really screwed up on this one and we're going to do everything we can to uh, you know, deal with the fact that these speakers will not be able to keep being updated, but that you, you know, that we want to make it, we want to let you like split your household system in some way so that you can still use those speakers. Maybe it is that they don't talk to the other ones perfectly anymore, but that you could still dial them up and just send music to them if you wanted to. And I think that would be the right way. You know, it's complicated in a way that is not either, is not traditionally Sonos either, but that kind of sounds like a much better solution than saying, Screw you. you. You just have to throw these old speakers out. 
this, this is the kind of complexity that arises when we hit that point where the hardware that is being offered by a company is indistinguishable from the software support that is implicit with it. I mean, I could have a 50-year-old tube amplifier and a 60-year-old yeah. you know, vinyl record player, and I should expect them to work for another God knows how many years, as long as it could be. They should sound better than when I first bought them in some cases. Right? But yeah. you don't get that when we move away from analog media. No one's going to expect that, you know, their Blu-ray player is going to work on their old cathode ray TV, TV, or at least I hope they're not going to expect that. You know, these are complexities that have hit us in probably, I would say, the last at most 15 years of technology, especially home technology and consumer technology. And they're really interesting. I mean, we, you know, we've got huge issues about what if one, and I know it's not going to happen, but what if, say, one manufacturer just said, yeah, we're not going to support the MP3 format anymore ever again. Yeah. What would that mean? And what rights would we have around it? We've not tested something like that yet. And I think it's really intriguing. There's something big coming in the works. It's just going to depend on when it arrives and how we actually deal with it. And I've got to say, you know, this was a rare initial misstep from Sonos. I'm quite surprised by it. Yeah. And I love that point you're making there because you know what? Like audio really lives in its own little space in tech, doesn't it? Because our expectations about what videos we can watch on a screen and what resolutions screen operates at and like all the fidelity aspects of pictures seems like so much more obvious to us in ways that, you know, and formats and all those kinds of issues that we do expect that things just kind of slowly, you know, have to keep marching onwards and that that's just the way it works. Whereas, like you say, because audio has been a capacity of just being able to relax and enjoy music for so long and speakers are speakers. I mean, again, audiophile stuff that is its own sort of space and Sonos has done well to kind of, I think, try to sit in that nice middle ground between, you know, giving an audiophile enough, not perfection, give them enough that they can really, really enjoy it and then make using music all around your home perfectly simple. Um so all those kinds of things, I think, are part of this idea that people do feel like they're going, but it's a speaker and a speaker should be able to be serving audio in a wildly, you know, much, much more ongoing basis than, than I would expect a TV to. It, it, it comes back to what we anticipate services to do for us, even when they are hardwired into that hardware. I mean, you know, we've seen some of the big issues of, you know, no one owns their media anymore to a certain degree. You know, you might have your favourite album on Spotify, but if one day that licence goes, you don't own it. You don't have a right to it. That's going to happen yeah. a lot more. That same is going to happen with favorite movies. You know, we, when we lost physical media, we lost a lot of ownership. Question is, when does that kind of take over from our understanding of the hardware that we're using as well? I think we've got, you know, we've got a few interesting years ahead of us would be my gut feeling on this. Yeah. And look, it, it, the big issue I have sort of for Sonos, and I think at least, you know, they came out pretty quickly to say, okay, yep. Yeah, we're hearing that there is a lot of noise. We've screwed up. We want to fix it. It is a, it's a question of faith, right? That I think there's so many things that, that set them apart with that idea of that consistency of, of, 
uh, looking after your equipment, which would mean that you could buy a speaker and know that, oh, well, down the track, you know, that will then become the speaker that gets used in, you know, in the study and we'll get the cooler one for the living room later on. Or like I, c- I have a pair of them that are the re- rear um, sound channels for our TV surround sound because we've mm. got a sound bar uh, the play bar in front of the TV and then two small sonar speakers at the back and like all these kind of ways that they've made it so versatile. The idea that like, oh, but maybe if I buy another one, suddenly like just that, just that basic idea that the services might start to kind of fracture and fall apart makes you then it opens the door to someone choosing another speaker company to play with and it's something and like just as a kind of total aside it reminds me of you know google you can get a website called killedbygoogle.com and look at how comfortable google has been over the years just murdering services and apps and hardware and all these things which is kind of bizarre because it's like google keeps acting like they're this startup and that it's okay to launch a service and then kill a service. Um, but actually, it, it does make people struggle to commit to a service if they can't really expect that it is definitely going to be there a few years down the track. Um, you know, right at that moment when you think, oh, we've just got it set up perfectly. The whole business is now humming because we, you know, adopted Google Hangouts, <laughs> whatever it might be. And suddenly like, oh, they've, they've, they're not doing Google Hangouts anymore. It's not a thing. Or, uh, like I even just, I hadn't realized that they killed Google Cloud Print as of December. Um, oh, sorry. It will, it will go at the end of this year. Right. In December 2020. And like, that's a thing that's built into lots of printers. And, so, you know, your phone can just comfortably send, you know, something to print from anywhere. Even if you're not home, you could send something to print at home. Every time Google kills one of these, I feel like it chips away at a different part of their customer base to say, oh, shit, like Google killed something again. What do I do next? I, you know, it, it just, it's that weird thing of, You'd think that the biggest company in the world for this kind of stuff would go, we should make sure we're committing to this for a lot longer than, than we do. Look, I don't want to get sidetracked too badly, but yeah, yeah, I don't think anyone said goodbye to Google Wave with a particular tear in their eyes. Inbox really hurt. That was an amazing service. Oh, Inbox. Right. Yeah, that was so good. But do you remember the RG when Google News was going to stop supporting RSS feeds? Oh my, yeah, like, uh, man, that, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. That and look, was that's absolutely huge. It, it, it created, like, a lot of people still actually sort of pegged that as a time when RSS for news distribution really kind of started to, to fall off, you know, that because it was such a good tool. And a lot of people sort of didn't necessarily move to something else because it was built into Google right alongside everything else they already had. Um, but I love Feedly, you know, which absolutely emerged off the back of the death of uh, the Google's, yeah, uh, reader uh, attached to, yeah, Google News. So it was like, man, um, you know, I still love RSS, but geez, yeah, they really, they really hurt that whole way of distributing news. I feel really bad making fun of it because I haven't thought about RSS feeds in so long. It sounds like we're complaining that our mechanical Turk isn't playing chess the way we liked it doing in the <laughs> 1800s. Yeah. <laughs> It's because you didn't keep feeding him, Nick. I always told you you got to keep feeding the curtain. <sighs> so I want to move on a little bit. We yes. were touching on before with tablets and sort of, you know, we noted that essentially it has kept the same form factor 
as we've always seen in all of those slate devices. It's a bit thinner, there's a bit less bezel, but it's still, at the end of the day, a glass rectangle that you're going to watch stuff with. Same goes with phones, although we're starting to see people push into what will be maybe the next form factor, and it does look like folding phones are possibly going to go a little bit mainstream. And the one I want to call out, again, because I think it's such a weirdly trusted brand, the Motorola Razr. Now, they've got a folding device that looks like that old school Razr. It essentially operates almost exactly like a flip phone, except it's a single unbroken screen. They are completely sold out on pre-orders until the middle of next month. Wow. Like, that is a huge start for, yeah, for this. I, I have just dialed up a picture of it because I quite honestly had not really managed to kind of bother really looking at so it much. One of it our, looks gorgeous. It does. One of our co-workers, um, Jess Dolko over at um, uh, CNET, absolutely loves it. Like, she's a huge fan of it. And mm. that Jess knows her way around mobile phones, and so I have yeah. a lot of trust for that. Do you see what I mean? With the way it flips like an old school flip phone makes so much more sense to me than what we'd seen Samsung trying to do with that almost butterfly design. Yeah, hundred percent. I I remember. Yeah, absolutely. When we when we saw the Samsung stuff last year, and it was that idea of trying to. I mean, off our tablet conversation, trying to go. Hey, here's your normal sized smartphone, and now you open it up, and it's big like a tablet. <laughs> I love this idea where it says, let's make it a tiny device that slips nicely into your pocket when you're not opening it, and then you flip it open, and now it is a big widescreen device that you actually could love watching movies on, sitting on on a commute, whatever it might be, sharing cool videos online. But when it's closed, it's that's when it's now in this tiny form factor. Instead, this is great. It's fantastic. And even if you're just holding it upright, just it just feels like a natural, normal scroll. Yeah. It's a single screen. But I guess my question is, while we can do this, you know, do you see something like this going mainstream? I think we're constantly maybe a bit worried that we need the next iteration of what a mobile phone is going to look like. But maybe it just will continue to look like a mobile phone. Like maybe until we genuinely have the kind of screen that you can scrunch up into a ball or roll up into a tube or whatever, we're just not going to see a big change in that form factor. Yeah, I I am really actually sort of thinking that this kind of idea probably has the best legs of anything we've seen so far. I, I've always wondered about the rollable screen concept. That is absolutely sort of one of those concepts I keep talking about, but, you know, even when you see LG's beautiful rollable TV, I don't mm. know if you've sort of seen I, I have. images of that, um, but the the fact that it kind of rolls away into a big, like, luxury, you know, credenza-type <laughs> stand, uh, and then it just keeps a little thin section open so you could play music and different, like, so you can still have a, sl- a little bit of interface available when it goes away. But, it, you know, it's not rolling like a, a blind will roll up. You know, it doesn't roll that tightly. And that's that issue with phone sizes, right? It's just not, we're not going to get down to that. But even if we did, it feels like it, then there is a point where it's too small again. You know, I kind of remember and often thought about the fact that, you know, it felt like s- smartphones had hit their right size precisely because they got smaller and smaller and smaller 
And then they started to get bigger again. It was like actually sort of small as a virtue had been met. And then it started to move back to that idea of, but now what is the best size? Because now that the screen is the whole thing, oh, we can do more with it. People are more comfortable using it. They can kind of enjoy content. All those sorts of things made it start to get bigger again. And it feels like that this is that sort of clever next solution where it's not about giving us more screen um, than we need from our phone. It feels right that this is about saying, and now this tucks back in your pocket in a way that phones haven't for a long time. Yeah, well, exactly. It's interesting you comment on that sizing thing too, because, you know, not to get fixated on the year of 2010, but I feel like we have already a little bit. <laughs> 2010 is when the Dell Streak came out. Yeah. Now, that was a five-inch screen Android tablet that was, at the time, panned and mocked for the unwieldy screen size that it had that no one could possibly want, a screen significantly smaller than the phone I'm using right now. Yeah. Though, you know, it has to be said, if you go back and look at the thickness and the bezel size, that it it was pretty gargantuan for what it was trying to be. Um, but you're still 100% right that it was funny. People are like, five inches? What? What? <laughs> so the other one that I was thinking of when I saw this razor, it was an old concept video from Nokia many, many years ago, looking at what they were way into the future considering for phones. And, of course, we all still have a Nokia phone in our pocket these days. Um, they were talking about this almost snap band style idea where the oh screen God. do you remember yeah. this the screen would kind of fold into maybe thirds lengthwise and then slap around your wrist to become your um uh, watch if you needed it to or you could just do a quick bit of scrolling even take a call off it or unfold it again if you needed the uh, larger screen and i think our concepts are there we're just waiting for the material engineering to catch up. And, of course, as always, chemical engineering and battery is the big sticking point for a lot of exactly. these. Exactly. Yeah, because that's it. The battery sort of has to – a battery doesn't bend. And no. It, or, if, or, you know, that's, that's exactly why they tell you on an aircraft that if you lose your phone down in the seat, please don't try to retrieve it because it's when you accidentally bend the battery that it blows up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And look, you know, there was some amazing work done. I'll call out LG for this because they had their own chem division. They were doing really interesting work with batteries that had unusual shape. Um, they had that weird phone that was slightly banana shaped. Yeah, what that's was right. that called? No, don't remember. Um, and the battery had flex. You could press that phone flat. And the battery was would obviously fold. Was it called fold. the LG Flex? I, I don't feel know like if it, it was, was it? I don't know. <laughs> flex, bend, twist, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And so they were really working on that. But... You know, they're only going to pump money into this dev for as long as it looks like it's going to go somewhere and people are showing interest. And I think that's what's killing is that maybe we're bringing out these concept ideas or even these kind of early models way before there's a market for it. And maybe it's the reverse iPad. <laughs> maybe it's dying because no one knows what they're going to do with it yet. Yeah, that's a good point. And I do love that wrist strap kind of idea. It definitely sounds like, again, if if they can get to that place with the materials involved that, you know, it's another sort of way of thinking about it, but I'm, I'm really impressed. Like I'm really quite excited having not gone digging around for the, uh, the mock-ups and things of the razor. That looks really cool. I do remember reading once that they have already though, tried to get ahead of the complaints, uh, you know, that 
people like Samsung got with their early release last oh, yeah, year, yeah, yeah. Um, where they have said that slight sort of warps and bumps on the screen is part of the nature of having this kind of bendable screen. So they're saying like, that's not, you know, a, very slight, you know, lumps and things are just part of how this screen works. So I, I just like that they've kind of pre-announced that to get ahead of people kind of going, why isn't this perfectly flat? And it's like, because it's literally a bendable screen. It's a completely different piece of tech compared to the glass-covered, perfectly flat screen that you've been using for the last 10 years. Well, I'm going to be keeping an eye out come mid-February because that's when the first few sales should be well and truly out of the Motorola Razr, and I cannot wait to see what it's like when people are actually using it. Yeah, you've got me excited. That's really cool. Um, To quickly wrap up, I just wanted to give a nod to the fact that there's been a huge... sort of exclusive deal done in the esports world, Activision Ooh. Blizzard, which has been running all its kind of esports leagues, you know, Overwatch League, uh, and that includes, you know, the Call of Duty World League, all these kinds of different, um, you know, Hearthstone esports. All of that has all been exclusive to Twitch for the last few years. They had the odd kind of ESPN broadcast deal attached to, you know, finals and things, but it was all exclusive to Twitch. Apparently that deal for the last few years was by itself worth a few tens of millions of dollars of us dollars to be exclusive. Um, and then literally about apparently two hours before the opening weekend of the new call of duty, call of duty world league last weekend, uh, they announced that actually it was all now exclusive to YouTube. And two hours later it was like, Oh, if you were trying to dial that up on Twitch, uh, you made a terrible mistake, but it doesn't, you know, the internet being the internet, it doesn't take long to work out where the hell is this thing on that I wanted to watch. Um, but a huge shakeup. They think there's, you know, yet more tens of millions involved with the deal. Um, it kind of comes off the back of last year, all these wheeling and dealing with Ninja moving to Mixer off Twitch. Then we had Shroud moving to Mixer, who was the biggest kind of Twitch star there was. Um, it's definitely had an impact on the viewing hours that Twitch was dominating, uh, you know, when it comes to all this sort of streaming content. Like, it, it's just interesting how quickly now um, the big players, and obviously Google has lots of money, um, but, you know, hey, they're competing with Amazon because Amazon owns Twitch, uh, you know, that, that there's now a really big play for that idea that exclusivity of content is going to be what they then want in order to drive. Here's how many people watch us. Therefore, you should buy your ads through our streaming platform, not that other streaming platform. Um, huge shakeup for the year ahead. Look, this is a space you work in a lot, a space you know well. How big a deal is this to Twitch? How big a hit is it? I... I think particularly the move to YouTube, I think, look, you know, it's quite honest that most people have just kind of laughed at Microsoft's effort to make Mixer a thing, um, you know, and by sort of buying Ninja and then sort of waiting about six weeks or so and then buying Shroud. Um, for those two guys, there's not much at stake for them, right? Like they get a massive payday. They go and do it. Maybe they do a two-year contract. 
based over there. Um, yeah, they still have tens of thousands of viewers, but their numbers are definitely way down compared to when they were on Twitch. Mm. So there's a lot of that habitual aspect. I mean, right. It's funny, isn't it? It always reminds me of, you know, oh, well, we only watch Channel 9 in our household. So whatever <laughs> comes on next is what I'll watch. Um, there's a little bit of that of, oh, I'm not going to open that other app just to watch that one person. It's like, it's not that much harder than, Again, alt-tabbing to the other thing. Um, but it seems like there's a bit of that taking place. Um, but, yeah, I think as some of the stats came out for the end of last year that actually has shown that the Just Chatting channel, so they kind of categorise things on Twitch under different games that people are playing, um, and there is a category called Just Chatting, mm. and that is people who aren't really streaming games. And almost like the origins of Twitch came out of a service called Justin TV, a guy who was just streaming himself doing his life, um, that we're actually now seeing Just Chatting is now the top uh, streaming category on that service. That was mostly during December, and, you know, there's a lot to be said for esports tournaments were in, you know, downtime and different things. But it's showing that there is a big rise in that space of if, People are buying the rights to other esports and to other celebrity game streamers. Then we're seeing Twitch TV, which, uh, you know, is, has really built itself off the back of gaming that that old traditional audience is kind of starting to reemerge, uh, as, yeah, as a big play. YouTube has struggled desperately to win any kind of share of, of that core gaming streaming audience i even saw recently like one of the biggest youtube celebrities dan tdm who's mostly you know he's there because um he has you know he's just puts up videos not streaming there putting up videos okay. he tried streaming for a while then actually late last year he did announce that his contract with youtube to only stream on youtube was over and he was going to go and start streaming on twitch because he felt like he literally kind of said it just doesn't feel like streaming really works here on youtube so i'm going to go and do it on the platform where people are expecting you to to stream so that's going to really sort of shake things up now that a whole bunch of esports are only going to be streaming on youtube i think what you've raised to me here is the very good point that while esports as a sport is starting to get settled the way we watch it is still yeah. anyone's game. Yeah, and you know, and when we're seeing companies like, you know, late last year we had Louis Vuitton uh, you know, uh become a major sponsor of the League of Legends World Championships. Um that you know that there are some of the most exclusive brands in the world, very non-endemic, nothing to do with tech, but they know this is a part of a world they want to be in. Here in Australia, we are so far behind the rest of the world. I think Europe and Asia in particular, this is, esports is just seen as absolutely just another, one of the things you would watch on the weekend, like any other sport or like any other entertainment option or going to it live or people that you treat as celebrities are, you know, esports stars, that it is completely mainstream, particularly in the Asian markets. Uh, and so all the big companies want a piece of it. But I think, you know, there's so many bits of Australian media that are just so conservative and backward <laughs> that we have these issues of people still want to kind of scratch their head and go, kids making money playing games, uh, that it just it hasn't really quite crossed over here yet. Not us. We're cutting edge as terms of media. We're willing to scratch our heads and go, kids making money, but we're doing it on a podcast. That's right. Hey, that's right. <laughs> poo poo. So fancy. I don't know why I poo poo. I don't know why either. I like that. Yeah. <laughs>
We should wrap it up. Let's. So I'm just going to say thank you for joining us. Nick Healy. It is my where pleasure. Where can people find you? Oh, so if you want to track me down on Twitter, and please do, because it's where I'm most active, it is at DR underscore NIC. Dr. Nick with an underscore, because they were cool at one point. They're not anymore, and it's very, very sad. And yeah, if you wanted to remove your underscore, then you'd lose your tick, wouldn't you? I'd also have to fight a guy who's apparently a Ruby on Rails expert for oh. his. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm at Seamus on Twitter uh, and at Byteside is also there at The Byteside on Instagram, Byteside on Facebook. Uh, ask at Byteside.com is our email address. I will also mention we, uh, the first episode of the newest show, Uplink just went live yesterday. It's probably not in podcast apps just yet because it's got to go through the the process of appearing in the official index of all things podcast, um, but you can catch it on the website. So it is very much an interview series with awesome, nerdy, brainiac people. Uh, first episode is a chat I had with David Gator last year while he was in town um, about just his whole career, his outlook on working as a narrative designer in video games. Nick, I know you spent some time with him on stage and he was completely awesome down at PAX Australia. He's incredible. Yeah, so a really good one to start things off. Next week, it's going to be Genevieve Bell, who I visited late last year down in ANU as well. So heaps of really cool conversations you can check out. Just keep checking Uplink in your podcast app and it will be there probably later this week. But until next time. Until next time for us. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>